Welcome to Walking After Foo, the album-by-album album discussion podcast of the band The Foo Fighters. I'm your host, Andrew Williamson, uh, joined with my other host and uh, partner in crime here, Peter Kennigsberg. Hello there. We are going to discuss the second Foo Fighters album today. I'm really excited. This is uh, probably one of their best, uh, but we'll get into that later. Uh, the album is The Color and The Shape. Uh, and we are joined today by a guest one that we were that was promised in the first episode we said there'd be guests we delivered Deliver. we delivered and that's <laughs> that's great uh today we have an astrobiologist astrophysicist a very smart person uh who is also been a Foo fighters fan for an incredibly long time uh we actually have been friends for i don't know 10 15 years ish uh anyway uh, please welcome to the show, Brett Morris. Brett, Hello, everyone, thank you. I'm oh, sorry, uh, Brett Morris, PhD. Yeah, yes, thank you. Yeah, please, full titles here. Full, full titles. titles. Yes, we do full titles here. So, how's it going, Brett? Good. How are you two? Excellent. Doing pretty well. Uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving time at the time of this recording. We are uh, doing these in lead up to the newest Foo Fighters album, Medicine at Midnight, that's going to be coming out on June 5th. So we're I think February, February 5th. Yeah. That's what I meant. We could edit that out in post. <laughs> uh, we are, uh, we're, so we're recording these in, um, in lead up to that. So it's, it's Thanksgiving time uh, here in the U S and I'm still super stuffed, but I'm very excited to talk about the Foo Fighters. Um, Cause they're a great American band, just like uh, Turkey is, a great i don't know where i'm going with this and i'm i really couldn't you were, no no you were doing great you were doing great like no, turkey was, is the great like centerpiece of a thanksgiving meal yes just like foo fighters we, are the centerpiece of america's rock scene there you go and has been for the last 20 years not to be too contrarian but turkey is the most inferior of the meats i agree I think we should, to compare yes, no, to the turkey is just inappropriate sure um so in that's what would be a better I mean we don't have to go with a meat here. We're talking about a Thanksgiving table. The turkey's going to be there. We can call that the the nickelback of the of the America's rock scene if you want. Uh what what would you think Foo Fighters would really fit in? Do do we are we thinking like stuffing or you know something with a little bit more like moisture in it for sure? I mean are we what, talking are, about Thanksgiving. We, <laughs> this is not about Thanksgiving. Oh no, my god. No, you're right. This isn't about Thanksgiving. We're recording during Thanksgiving, but this is not about Thanksgiving. We're talking about the Foo Fighters. <laughs> going to apologize for myself. Uh, I'm going to apologize for myself. <laughs> and uh, and Brett, you shouldn't have to apologize for yourself. You are no. a, a new father, and so lack of sleep goes in that. There's no shame in uh, in. Oh, I get to be as insane as I could possibly. Yes, you get to be as insane, uh, but I'm supposed to be the host, and so I should I shouldn't seem like a crazy person, but I am, and that's fine. So, Brett, uh, before we get into the album in particular, I do have a couple questions for you on your your Foo Fighters. I don't want to say fanatic. I've been using the term super fan. Do you think that's fair to say? I think so. Yeah. So my, my first question for you is, when did you first hear Foo Fighters? And when did you first realize that, you, that this, was a, this, was, this was your band? Well, I can tell you that I was reflecting on this question. Uh, I was hoping that you would ask it because I remember very vividly the day that someone called me out for not knowing who the Foo Fighters were. It was in eighth grade. And a girl named Jessica, who was two years my senior, uh, who I was interacting with because of a club, 
had shown me her iPod and I was going through them and I was like, Foo Fighters is a funny name. What is that? That was my reaction. And she laughed, not because that's a funny joke, but because I didn't know who the Foo Fighters were. And she showed me two songs, which I believe were Everlong and times like these, I want to say, and uh, said, you should listen to all the rest. There's a lot more. And I am a diligent student. So I went home and I did my homework and I liked what I saw. I was very entertained by like every video that came up when I was searching. And then um, your second question, it's more about when did I realize what foo meant to me. I think I realized twice what the Foo Fighters meant to me. And I'm going to try to not spend the next hour telling you about both of them. But concisely, there were two moments that I think back on when I think about what the Foo Fighters mean to me. One is more recent, and I get to brag a little bit by sharing this story, which is that when the Foo Fighters were out promoting Sonic Highways uh, at the same time that they were going on a surprise tour to promote the Sonic Highways uh, documentary series, um, I caught on to the pattern that was embedded in the tweets alerting people that important musical cities were about to have shows and so I waited all day on the day when I expected them to announce Seattle as a show when I was living in Seattle at the time. And I signed up for tweet alerts from the Foo Fighters. And so within 30 seconds of the announcement that they would be selling tickets eight hours later at a record shop down the street, I left work. I asked someone to cover for me <laughs> and I went straight to the record shop and I was eighth in line for the 300 tickets they gave away to see a show with the Foo Fighters in the Showbox in Seattle, which is slash was, depending on when you're listening to this, a, a medium-sized venue in Seattle, um, which was a really special experience for me uh, on multiple levels. It was, it was an experience to be there for the tickets. And that was exciting. But there was a kind of camaraderie among the Foo fans who were there that felt very welcoming to me. And I think part of that is the Seattle music scene is proud of their own. And uh, the claim that Seattle has is always slightly overreached. And so uh, they will claim Dave Grohl is partly a Seattle musician. Um, but also the the moment of actually being at that show and being eight feet away from Dave Grohl and being able to scream back at him and know that he wasn't listening for me, but I could scream at him and he could hear me. That was kind of cool um, because it was such a small venue and that's such a unique experience. And so I feel very, very lucky to have had that experience on this Thanksgiving. I am thankful for that experience. Um, but then the other one, and I promise I'm not saying this to suck up to Andrew, is that I have 
played in several bands of my own. And uh, one of the musical collaborations that is most important to me is my musical collaboration with your host, Andrew Williamson. Andrew and I have played music together for more than a decade with probably more gaps than continuous stretches because I keep moving. But over that span of time, one of our constants, one thing that we could always come back to is the Foo Fighters. Because in our minds, they're frozen in time as kind of timeless music. They, and I don't mean that to say that it's classic rock or that it's music that came down from on high and was so inspired that it's different from everything else. But I think we can say with some certainty among the three of us that the music that you listen to at the end of middle school, beginning of high school, crystallizes in your brain in a different way from other music. And the music that crystallized in my brain at that age was a handful of albums, and one of them is The Color and the Shape. And I will always remember having tried to play songs from Color and the Shape with Andrew at Andrew's house, where Andrew is recording right now, and uh, trying to get through Everlong with Andrew, which is always because the, the 16th notes on the hi-hat are really tiresome after a little while. Um, but also playing some of their more recent music at the time from In Your Honor. Uh, I will always remember playing Best of You and, and other music with Andrew. So those are my, my two Foo memories. Very well put. And uh, I love you. And love you too. I think that I, I, I obviously I remember those times. I rem I have very strong memories of I think we'd been getting into we had started playing in a band together at about the time like right before uh, Echo Silence Patience and Grace came out. I remember spending a lot of time on that record. Uh, like I guess it was like right when that album came out, it was like the pretender and uh, home. Like, I know you learned how to play that on piano. Like we learned how to play half the songs off that album, just sitting in like my parents where I'm currently recording. Cause it is Thanksgiving. My parents house basement that icky thump, I think had been had just come out from white stripes. Um, but yeah, that ever long, those are, those are definitely albums that like I, like going back and we'll, when we get to it, I'll talk about it, I guess a bit more, but like, I wouldn't say Echo Silence, Patience and Grace is their best record, but it's one of the ones I'm most fond of because it came out in high school when you and I were like so close and playing all the time. And we spent like every, like every other day together playing music. So yeah, th those were, those were great. And I, uh, one of the reasons why I love Foo Fighters also is because of, because of that. Well, our focus today, um, the reason why we brought Brett in for this one is because this is a really, I think, special album for a lot of people who are fans of Foo Fighters, The Color and the Shape, released May 20th, 1997. The follow-up to kind of a very different album in the sense that Foo Fighters 1995 was just one man, just Dave Grohl. And now there's a whole band being put together. And so 
very different approach, I would say, very maybe even different sound, maybe you guys would argue. But on the surface, I mean, let's just talk in general terms. Andrew, starting with you, what is it about this album that you love so much? What jumps off the page to you about this one? I think that coming off the first album, coming off the demo-y, very grungy sound, this feels like Foo Fighters. This is the first time it really feels... There's a couple of songs you know, that we, we talked about this, like Alone and Easy Target and Good Grief and Big Me. And they play regularly and whatnot, but this is when it really feels like Foo Fighters. You know, you've got a few other people that are actually working on arrangements. It's You're starting to get hits. You're starting to get, like, the big hits. You know, like, Monkey Wrench and... Like, son- sonically, it has the strong like more like this is a band as opposed to this is the one of the best demo tapes that's out there like this is this is where it really starts to feel like a and and like it structurally feels like the track listing the order that you're going in to me feels like okay this is sequence somebody thought like somebody thought this through it feels planned it feels kind of deliberate rather than just supposed to let me run into a studio. I've got some. I've got some demos. Let me see what I can put together. Yeah. Um, Brett, what about you? What What on the surface is so special about this album for you? To echo what Andrew said a bit. I think one of the things that stands out to me about this album is the template that it sets for future Foo records. There's a mix of soft and loud on this album. There's a mix of heartfelt and brash. There's a mix of the things that are yet to come. For example, we know that the next two albums are all pretty loud, but then when we get to In Your Honor, it's a double album and there's half acoustic songs. And I feel like that is foreshadowed if you pay attention to Color in the Shape um, because there's there's an alternating pattern. As you said, it's kind of a planned album of, of highs and lows that are engineered to keep you guessing and keep you entertained. And I think that's what I love about it. And what's interesting too is how, in my opinion, connected it is to what's happening in Dave's life outside of music. 1995's record is obviously, it doesn't happen without the tragedy of of Kurt Cobain. Uh, This album may not happen without the tragedy of his divorce and the emotions that were sparked from that. A lot of people say that the highs and lows of this album could be the highs and lows of his own coping with that separation. But what you allude to is what I feel too, is that it's, it's a setup for what I think we all appreciate about the Foo Fighters in the years that are to come. Um, let's dive deep a little bit into the songs, song by song, little uh, you know, thoughts on everything. The, the record begins with not even a 90 second intro. It's a minute 23. If you look at the track listing, Doll is how, how this opens. Almost in my opinion, surprising. You know, you, you turn on Foo Fighters record, you've already heard 1995 with the lone and easy target and, you know, and, and things like that. And you think, well, what, where are we going with this? What, how, why does it begin like this? What did what, you guys think of this intro? I thought it was a great intro, uh, like of a very soft, like a very soft, like, op- like a emotionally opening song to go immediately from that into monkey wrench. I think if you started with monkey wrench, it wouldn't it would just feel very like, Oh, okay. I guess this is a bunch of songs as opposed to feeling like a, like a record. I'm thinking a bit about the ways that this record informs 
following records and thinking about little nods to moments that are created in this album, mm-hmm. uh, in future albums. And I think Concrete and Gold is a good example of an album that has a callback in that t-shirt is kind of the doll of Concrete and Gold. Yeah. And I've been thinking a bit about what my favorite song is on the color and shape. And I have a very hard time answering this question. So don't ask me what I've settled on because I haven't, but it might be doll. And I think the reason for that is that it has almost nothing to do with everything else. It is a standalone moment that exists by itself. And the rip roaring tide of monkey wrench then pulls you right into the rest of the album. But you, you get this, this moment of reprieve from whatever you were listening to before. In, in this moment when you're just listening to Dave beat Dave, and then you get a whole lot more of Dave with things like Monkey Wrench, but it's a different, it's a different side, a different angle. It's almost like it, if it didn't exist there, if it wasn't put there, could it exist anywhere else in this track listing? Because I feel like it almost, yeah. it, it almost deserves this, this spot. And I think the reasons you gave are the reasons that you know, we're going through Dave's head at the time saying, no, this is where it belongs for the reasons why. It's that, it's that you know, little kind of step in between of, you know, we know what you've heard, we know what you're expecting, but for a moment, let me just, let me just show you the breadth of musicality, emotion that can be presented through a song or a, a, uh, an interlude, maybe, like, like Doll. But then what it comes into, what it then, you know, kind of the, the crescendo, uh, if, I'm, if I'm using that classical term, appropriately uh our classical you know classically trained people here may may disagree but i'm going to go with it it's a crescendo it's a it's a rising up into monkey wrench which was the first single off of the color and the shape released about a month prior to the album itself being fully released and this is one that having gone to shows with andrew several times brett you haven't gone to many shows as well uh this is the one that people look forward to this is the one that excites a lot of people really people lose their mind High, high energy, huge energy. I mean, I know this is, when I hear this song, this is quintessential Foo Fighters to me. And there are many songs within this list that are like that. But this is really, for me, just kind of a a memorable point. You know, you think about the songs that were played on the radio, songs played, you know, in a lot of commercial aspects. This is one that always stands out. But I want to hear from you guys what what you thought about this uh, song, you know, even as maybe like first impressions, but just kind of, you know, how it, impacted your perception of the Foo Fires, how it impacted your, your interest in this album, thing, things like that. Yeah, so it, it's, it's awesome. It's a, great, it's a great rock song. It hits all those marks of what you expect from a Foo Fighters song, from Foo Fighters music. You know, it, it, the same thing happened with you know, Best of You or Alone and Easy Target or any of those where you've got these just intense guitar. The drumming is very Dave. Dave did most, if not... He didn't do all the drumming, but he did most of the drumming on this record. And it's, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, just, it's this like super intense rock song that you get into the mosh pit. It feels, like a, it feels like a mosh pit song. And I think it's interesting in contrast next to Doll because Doll is incredibly vulnerable. Yes. It, it starts with the line, in all of the time that we've shared, I've never been so scared. Is that something you would ever say to someone? No. Right? That that's incredibly vulnerable. And then it jumps into this rock and roll persona that Dave is willing to put on when he changes hats. 
and say things that are a bit trite, but loud enough that they're entertaining. Like, what have we done with innocence? Like, that's something you might also not say to someone, but for different reasons. And I think the, the common theme here that draws me back to these songs is that they're honest. I think there's an honesty in shouting at a microphone that I'm wasting another night on planning my revenge that is related to the vulnerability in the previous song and some of the other songs on the album. It's, it's very in your face about how he's feeling at any point in time. It's there for you to read. It's, it's not hidden. It's not hard to find. Yet it forces you to listen through the, the arrangement that they've made to say, okay, what is, what is he actually getting at here? What is the, the, the core of the, the, the feeling here? And again, it, it may go back to the headspace Dave was in at the time that this was being recorded, what was happening in his life around that. But you're exactly right. The fact that he is allowing himself to be vulnerable, the fact that he is exploring his own emotions and is translating them through song and, and taking an opportunity to take what is projected to be and was a, a major release on a major label um, and use that platform to make that happen with a band and everything. So much is changing. So much is evolving and moving around in his universe. And yet he is still finding a way to be a little more introspective and, and help explain the man behind the music, which I think is what we all look for when we're listening to any artist is just an understanding of what is this man or woman or, or group about. And I think he accomplished that really well. Let's go on to track number three here. Hey, Johnny Park. Hey, comma, Johnny Park, exclamation point. Very few times mm-hmm. you get a, almost a, a fully structured sentence as the title of a song, but we get one here. <laughs> um, I guess let's, let's start again with Andrew. Andrew, tell us your sentiments about Johnny Park. I think I like Hey, Johnny Park more than Monkey Ranch as like a musical piece. It's one of those things where, I don't know if you have that, where you, know, you listen to... Like the, the lead single from your favorite record is usually not your favorite song. It's usually your least favorite song. And not that yep. Lucky Ranch is my least favorite song on this record, but Hey Johnny Park comes in with this great, it's just, a, I, th- I like the riff so much more. It's, it comes in with that, the drum fill right before and you get this like lead up. And, pr- and they, don't, they don't play that song very often. It's a shame. Uh, I know that you, I think you saw it, right, Brett? I think they played it at that show, did they? Hey Johnny Park? Hard to say. It's all a blur. <laughs> okay. That's one. I, it's just one of those songs that's, I, I, it's just an awesome song. I really like it. I wonder if this song is an example of, and you guys tell me if you agree or disagree, of an example of he needed a full band to make this based on the complexity in some places of, what, of what's going on. I don't know if you guys felt the same way, but I feel like I listen to songs like this and I'm like, oh, you know, as much as Dave Grohl is central to the operation, maybe, you know, having, another drummer having another guitarist you know and another other people to bounce ideas off of and get perspectives on maybe a song like this wouldn't have developed had dave not had a a, a group with him i appreciate that perspective but i also think it's a good example of a song that follows the dave Grohl approach to songwriting which he's stated in several documentaries he thinks about a guitar like a drum kit he thinks about the bass end of the guitar as the bass end of his drum kit and the higher notes as the more shimmery cymbal sound that he can come away with. And I think when you look at the structure of a song like Hey Johnny Park, you actually hear that in the songwriting, in that the riff 
is meaty. It's got the same kind of bassy vibe that the drums in the fill that introduces the song has. And then he just rips on these open chords nice and loud in the same way that you can picture him ripping on a drum kit on the same song. So I think the style of songwriting that we've become familiar with as signature Dave Grohl is showing full force in a song like Hey Johnny Park. I like that. I like that. It's even uh, echoed a little bit in, um, I'm going on a slight tangent here. We will, we will bring it back, but what you're talking about, how every instrument reflects a piece of a kit of, of a beat that it's, that's contributing to is kind of like what James Brown did in his music, where he said, every, every piece of the, the group is a drum. Everyone starts on the one, everyone starts at a certain point and we, and we go from there. Dave Grohl, not copying that because he has his own genre, own way of doing things, but he's following a similar philosophy of everyone is part of the same unit. Everyone's part of the same kind of, you know, drum kit uh, of, you know, collective, just making the whole thing move a certain way. So I like I that like, you connected yeah. to James Brown in particular, because I think the Foo Fighters mentality of playing a show in its entirety without an encore is lifted straight from the philosophy of James Brown, who famously mm. said, kill him and leave. Yeah. And I think that's the attitude that Dave brings to a stage uh, that the rest of the band back up so, so beautifully that uh, you, you are there to do business. That business is rock and roll. We are here to worship together in a congregation until we can't anymore and then we're going to stop and then we're going to leave and no we're breaks. not going to figure you out it's it's not going to be some pageantry we're, we're here to rock right. even in the way that he the uh, introduces that the band which is like a james brown move you keep the you keep the songs keep going and they just you're up solo and when they do when he introduces the band you know, they keep, they're still rocking and they just cut into a different, they just cut into a cover. They just cut into whatever the, you know, they're feeling that day, you know, Queen or Van Halen or whatever. And so you just keep this rock and roll, you keep the rock and roll feel going. You keep that like, also that like history thing that, you know, he kind of started to do a little bit more with Sonic Highways, I feel, where he's like, you know, I want to, I want to educate as well as uh, entertain. You got to a certain point during Sonic Highways where they became the elder statesman. And he said, all right, I have to explain that all music doesn't come from a computer. There are instruments. There is, there, there is a little more complexity beyond that. So here's what that was like. And I, we, we will get into that album in a couple of episodes from now, but there's a lot to be said about you know, what he learned, what he taught us, and, and what we that whole there, album yeah. meant. Um, but continuing with Color and the Shape, we're on to track four, my poor brain. Um, and I, I don't even want to, you know, share my own thoughts before I hear, hear you guys is, um, Andrew, let's, let's begin with you. Yeah. My poor brain. What do you think about this as the fourth track on the album? This is, I think it's, it's well-placed between, uh, the kind of like heavy rock, like kind of track down from monkey wrench down to wind up, uh, with the half break with up in arms. We'll get there. But my poor brain is one of the ones that definitely has that emotional feel lyrically. It it definitely has like a, I think it's he's described it as somewhat of a therapy session. This record, the you know, going through a divorce and yep. 
kind of mentally attacking himself. Like there's, that's something that you see and musically you can hear in, there's a lot more in this song than I haven't heard in a while. It's, it's very like, it's, you know, very pixies of like quiet, loud, quiet, loud. Uh, but there's things in here that I, I'm listening back. You can hear Pat parts where like, Oh, that wouldn't have sounded the same if Pat Smear wasn't the guitarist. If it was just Dave doing the guitar, you wouldn't have heard these like huge, heavy, you know, chords that were like very background as opposed to just hearing the riff, which was a very Dave approach to, to guitar playing. And bro, what, do you, what did you think about My Poor Brain when you were listening to it? Sometimes when I listen to a song like My Poor Brain, I wonder what produces the intro that we hear on the album. In so many songs, we hear random noises that are being made in the studio in between the recordings of songs. And I, I wonder about My Poor Brain, what led to the cacophony of sounds that introduced this song? Did, did they decide that they needed to blunt the softness of the song that's coming in the verse with something hard and more rock and roll is is this an echo of doubt that perhaps being vulnerable and quiet is weakness because i think this album is about that duality it's about not being comfortable with being vulnerable but being vulnerable anyway and i i think hard sometimes about how i would introduce a song like this because i don't know how i would start it I'm not a particularly gifted songwriter, so I'm glad this is not my job. But I think the introduction to a song that goes from soft to loud says a lot about who you're trying to draw into the song. And when I think about the audience that was listening to a Foo Fighters record, especially in the beginning, I wonder if Dave felt that he was the drummer and he needed to convince people to listen to his music and his music was not Nirvana, but it was loud. And so if you like loud music, you should listen to this and give it a shot. So I wonder if this is bait, if he's just throwing out a line and seeing if you'll, you'll grab it by the hook. It's interesting. We talked about on our first episode about the 1995 record, how there were so many of these songs Dave had written prior to getting in the studio, wanted to even show Kurt, but was too afraid to show Kurt because he was afraid that he wouldn't like it, that he would turn, that he would reject his ideas, that he wouldn't be comfortable with it. And so what you are referencing, I feel, is maybe a little bit of that. Is this hesitation on his part to say, is this okay? Do people like this? Can I can I do this? Am am, am I am I as you know, maybe even a little bit of imposter syndrome, perhaps, of just wondering, is this is this the right way to be going about doing this? And so I think maybe even throughout this recording process, he's building that confidence and getting there, but you know, there's still some hurdles he has to climb. We're not even through the A side, and I think he's still fighting some demons as we get into wind-up and the concept of paramania. <laughs> of, in case people don't know, paramania is the uncontrollable urge to complain. Um, and, you know, you know, when you read the lyrics, um, when you really dive deep into wind up, you get I, it's essentially, Brett, what you were saying, you're probably taking a page out of if there was a couple's therapy session between Dave and his and his ex. 
this is probably some of the wor- the key phrases that got pulled out of those meetings. If you read that transcript, I think that's when I re- when I hear this song and then I read the lyrics, I'm like, there's he- here. If you didn't understand originally why this album was created, what the impetus was for it, and what is going on within it, wind up in my opinion is kind of for lack of a better word, the heart of the album in the sense that it gives you the sentiment of what's going on, but it doesn't have to be at the forefront. It doesn't have to be the single because in my opinion, Dave's probably thinking, let me just put this out. Let me get this on paper. Let me get this out of my head and my heart and, and express it because this is what was troubling me the most. This is, this is the, the, the crux of the issue right here. It's, it seems subtle, but it's it's really I think I think this is where the uh, the the demons are if if there are any to be found in this album. Andrew, what do you what do you think about um about Wind Up as a follow up to to My Poor Brain? I think it's interesting that what you brought up just his like mental state and where where he is you know at this point and like it it fits very well with the previous song and Doll and several of the every other song i had thought like is this isn't one of the ones that strike like it's a very you know cool song it's like whether they're talking about i was just thinking like does this can you take this song out of like where it is and does the rest of it make sense which i think about for several of these you know as we think about some of these songs like can you take doll out and the record still makes sense can you take you know monkey wrench or my hero or Everlong or walking after you. And does it like, do you lose the, sh- like the story that's happening? What's being told? What makes sense? Do you, you're still getting that. We're in the early stages where you're still talking about where, you know, you're still frustrated, still angry, still like working through before you get to the resolve towards the end of the record. I don't know. There's just a thought, Brett, do you have any? When I think about wind up, I think about the desire to write a song that will make an audience move. I like to imagine when you're writing a song who you're writing it for and who you're playing it for are often different audiences. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of these songs are written for, as you've said, therapy. They're, they're a way of dealing with what's going on in his life. But this song sounds to me like an effort to make a crowd behave the way he wants them to behave, right? I think one of the things that makes music magical is that we get the opportunity to place your thoughts in someone else's brain. And Wind Up is an effort to make a pit, right? Like it it is saying, I want you to do this and daring you to do it. And there, there are messages and things in the song that are worth reflecting on, but I think this is actually a good example of a song that a drummer might be afraid to share to a group of people, but could stick in the middle of a record and see how the crowd actually responds to it when they play it live. Because I know how I would respond to this song if I saw it live. I would be jumping up and down a lot, I think. I wonder if Dave maybe wanted more windups in the record and less monkey wrenches. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think he wanted to make more of a windup record or did he want to, did he want to make more of a monkey wrench record? I think I, I do agree. I, my favorite songs are more are closer to the windups. Uh, we talked about last on the last show that my favorite song on the first record is good grief, 
uh, a song they haven't played since 19, like 98. Uh, and, you know, the songs they do play are more, which I guess goes into greatest hits, right? Monkey Wrench is a hit. Uh, but I think that, which I think also goes to, you get to small shows like the ones in Seattle or a small show in DC and they pull out the enough spaces. Um, they pull out My Poor Brain and Hey Johnny Parks, uh, you know, more. So so I, I think that there's definitely a fondness to it. I think, you know, Dave Note, when he's playing shows or when he's making records, he has a structure in his mind of, how a set goes and that's kind of how he kind of fills this out he knows there's a certain way you need to place things and you know there's certain you know there's certain songs he might have like a more affinity towards that end up in the middle of a set right before something that's gonna you know jump you know spark the crowd uh like in you know it goes right from here into up in arms but then like my hero you have a song like up in arms may not be something that like it's a fun it's bouncy but then it may not be as pull. It's it's a quicker song to then go into my hero, and that's the hit, and everyone goes crazy. You know, right? That's that's the sixth track up in arms. Probably ends the side A. I, I would I would think based on where it's placed. I don't have it on vinyl, um, so I don't know. Uh, I do know someone who does, uh, and if you remember, <laughs> I don't know if yeah, you have. My- my turntable's in a storage unit somewhere. I haven't played this record in so long on <laughs> a physical disc. I, I, I want to say it's either, it's either Up in Arms or My Hero. is Somewhere in there is the end of the A side. Right, right. It's, but it's, it's sort of that halfway point. I think the funny thing, I was doing some research on this song, and Dave just said very casually, it's, it's just a typical love song. It's, it's, just, it's just a regular pop song. It's just a love song. You know, but he... I mean, I think this is a really great example, just looking outside of the song for a second, how nonchalant he can be about his own, th- his own music. He's asked about the, you know, the 95 record with Foo- for Foo Fighters. It's like, yeah, if I knew it was going to be a thing, I wouldn't have called the Foo Fighters. It was just me messing around, but it turns into a, a significant piece of, of 90s rock history and, and rock thereafter. But, you know, I think you, you, were, you were onto something when you were talking about Up in Arms, Andrew, about where this, where this is placed, what its significance is, and whether or not it ends the side, I think it could end a side. I think it's, it's, yeah. it's a good way to just wrap up initial, you know, like, you know, highs and lows of, of side A, trying to hold on to understanding what's going on there and then sort of say, okay, we're going to end this side, we're going to end that chapter, and we're about to move into something else. What I think is interesting about this song, um, and I don't know if you guys have heard it, but there's a version of this song on, that I think they released on Spotify uh, with the 25th anniversary set, uh, the, there's a slow version of Up in Arms. The beginning section of Up in Arms is was the original version that they made before they re-recorded everything in LA with Dave on drums, so with the original drummer. I thought it was a really fun idea to have this slow intro into the real song, and then it becomes this like kind of poppy. You, know, you kick in with that drum fill, and it, all of a sudden it's a you know, everyone, it's a jump up and down. It's a fun, like, happy poppy song. Sometimes when I listen to this record, I think about paying the bills. <laughs> By that I mean, <laughs> some of the songs are written to pay the bills, and some of the songs are earned on the credibility from having paid the bill. For example, Monkey Wrench is clear what it does. It's a hammer or a monkey wrench. It it does what it does. 
but there are other songs that speak to the artistic freedom that you can give yourself if you've done what everyone expects of you already. Mm-hmm. And I think those glimpses of those moments happen in places like the intro to Up in Arms, where I don't think Dave takes his songwriting seriously enough to think that he could put out a whole song that sounds like the intro to Up in Arms at this point in his career. But he knows that he's bought enough time with your attention on this record up to this point in the album and knowing that my hero is coming next to just take that space and take that moment and, and create a moment that, that lives right in the middle of the album. It, It kind of feels like, you know, he did, you know, he made the slow version. He's like, ah, now they're not going to buy this. You know, the record label's not going to buy this. They want to listen Nirvana in it up a little bit. And they do the loud version. And then their sequencing is like, hey, there's like a whole, there's no breaks yet. We've just had bangers the entire time. It's been loud the entire time. I need something a little soft. So like, let's get, maybe we'll just give them that little taste of like, hey, we, I could have done this, but I know that you probably wouldn't want that. Never mind. Let's, let's go back to loud. Well, then they go to track seven, My Hero, which I would say is the biggest call and response track they play live. Um, maybe one of the biggest that's being played at live concerts, depending on when you're listening, when or that they are performing. Um, I know when I first saw Foo Fighters with Andrew, 2015, City Field, standing in general admission, essentially, I don't know, Andrew, we would say like we were 20. 30 feet away from the catwalk, perhaps. And yeah. we, we weren't far. We were like, yeah, there was like maybe two people in front of us. And there's a moment where this is when Dave Grohl's leg is broken. It's the broken leg tour. He's got the, the, throne, the throne on hydraulics moving up and down the catwalk because he can't go anywhere himself. So he's, he's being moved. But essentially, he is moving very slowly, if I remember correctly, very slowly up. And I think I remember telling Andrew, I'm like, like Dave's on the move. What's he doing? And he's starting my hero and he gets to the end and it is, and I, 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 even I'm turning around with him because from my vantage point, you know, being a baseball fan, I'm standing in center field. I'm looking out to the, to the stands as a center fielder would. And it's packed. It's packed that that stadium without people being on the field is supposed to hold, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 plus people. And they, the seat, every seat is full. Everyone is chanting along it's one of the most powerful moments I've had seeing a live show and the fact that it was because of a song like this, which interestingly enough has the second longest runtime on the record. And you, know, you think about going back to commercial viability, sometimes a four minute plus track doesn't make it. It has to get cut to a radio edit very often, but it just, it, it held really well. It's held a lot of meetings over the years for, for uh, veterans, he's done a lot of benefit concerts where this is a great song for veterans and for uh, frontline workers and for people who are, you know, deserving of the respect of, of all of us every single day. Um, but at the end of the day, to me, it is the biggest song in terms of like grandiose, you know, arrangement. It is, I think, the most impactful song. I don't think there would be any other song where you get that kind of call and response without it being so big. Um, but to me... If I had to pick a favorite, it's might still be Everlong, but my hero is I, I, I flip flop between the two because um, depending on the time, what's going on in everyone's life, this song is, always has a, a relevancy. It's timeless, in my opinion. Um, those are my thoughts. That's my uh, you know my my experience with it. What, what, what do you guys think about this this record? I'd agree with you. This is definitely 
I'm like thinking about it now. Like, yeah, this is one of those songs, you know, Brett mentioned before, there's like a song that, you know, that pays the bills and there's ones that uh, you can make because you pay the bills. And I think this somehow falls into both. Like, right. It's, it's a hit. This is a banger, but it's a, I don't know. The, the lyrics are like, it definitely is not, it doesn't fit with the rest of it. Uh, you know, this is, this is, seems like a separate song from the emotional track listing that we were looking at before, but it's, I don't know. It's good. It, it's a, it's a great song. I love some, some, I've sometimes I'm not as analytical. Uh, it's just like, this is a great song and I just need to like rock out to it and scream along. But to Beats point, every time I've seen them that they've played this song, cause they don't, they don't play this every time. Uh, I think the time you saw the, me and Brett saw them is the only time they haven't played it because they only had like 30 minutes, but everyone, you look around, it, the entire crowd is screaming along. The entire, he doesn't have to sing the chorus. And he, he doesn't actually, he just like screams like you sing it or whatever he sings, whatever he screams out and plays guitar and 30,000, 40,000, a hundred thousand people all singing in unison to the song. It's, yeah, it's definitely the call. It's the call and response song. It's maybe outside of Best of You, it's probably, and maybe Everlong is probably their like two, three biggest hits, I would say. I'd say so. I think I need to ask Peter, though. Do you take personal offense to the lion? Don't the best of them bleed it out while the rest of them peter out? I know. It's a personal affront. It, it, it's because what is that it's called associative listening i think you always hear your name before anything else <laughs> yep. and so the first time i heard that i said well what does that mean i know i know what my name means in the dictionary it means to tire out i know it's something i live with it's something i accept but i know deep down i think dave has a uh, a an affinity for my name obviously my name is somewhere in his headspace and i think that's that's what i think about is that my name's up there it's a good that's a good way to I, 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 try to, I try to flip it. I try to flip it because Brett's right. It's not you have to, cool, you have to own it. Okay. Is what you have to do. I, I accept it. I accept it for what it is. I, I, I love that this song goes into uh, the next. The next that my hero goes into see you mm-hmm. eighth track, and it's we have like we were saying. It's been heavy rocker, hard rocker after hard rocker after hard rocker after noise, and then you have this pop my hero, and then you have. The, what's probably the silliest song with CU, mm-hmm. at least instrumentally, it's a very, it feels like a very silly song. And when they, they did it for the Skin and Bones tour, uh, when they did, they did all acoustic songs, and this song was on there. And it feels like a very like fun, happy... It's the silly part of Foo Fighters comes in. Perhaps why it's on the B-side, if, if this is the B-side that we're at at this point. I think but, at this point, we're in the B-side. Yeah, if if it's so. if we're starting or not is unclear, but we're we're feeling very B side at this point. Brett, does it feel too silly to you based on what comes right before it? It feels not to overanalyze it. It feels a bit like this is the song that has the ooze in it. it you couldn't put the song with the ooze in it really anywhere else on this album. Where would it fit? It fits right here. It see you. That's where it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is continuing through the album now we get to a point in this record where now we have songs written exclusively by dave Grohl. up to this point every song obviously has a majority of dave Grohl's influence on it but nate and pat nate mandel pat smear are contributing to the songwriting up until this point 
song nine, Enough Space, is the first one where Dave Grohl pens it all the way through. Um, and so that's kind of what I want to focus on here. But please, if there's anything else you guys that draws you to this record, let me know. But I just want to know from you guys if that changed things in your mind, if maybe you knew he was the only one to write it, maybe you didn't know, but does that change how you feel about Enough Space, the songs we'll talk about in a minute, and how it compares to the rest of the album? So I think he talked about this one in the documentary, uh, Back and Forth, that he this is one of the one of the handful of songs that he had written on tour in like 96 that he was, they were touring in Europe and he wanted a song to, so Brett's point of like, I wonder if you think about if what you're thinking about the audience, not just who you're writing it for, but like, what's the, you know, he has the contradictory, like the, the song, the lyrics are definitely for the mo- emotional headspace he's in, but the music is fits the, uh, like the audience and apparently in Europe, they don't mosh. They, they just jump up and down. They just bop. And so he's like, I need to have a song that bops. And so he's, you know, he's, he's got the, the drum beat in mind. Dun, 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 dun. And then he's, he's got the, the bass line in mind. And so he's like, Oh, well I have this bass line and I've got this guitar riff and then shows it to them and they do it on a sound shack somewhere in Europe. And then they do it the next night and people like it. So yeah, this is one of those. Um, yeah. I, I thought that was an interesting thing that it does fit with that like you're you know you've got all these songs that are and like thoughts and feelings in your mind uh but how do i make it you have that like it's fun but it's also like feels it's fun and feels in the feels yeah you, and you also, bop, you bop. Speaking, yeah. speaking of feels um this is a feel that i often have is there never seems to be enough space I'm an astrophysicist for those who are listening and don't know me. There never is enough space. Is there not enough space? I thought there's there, I thought there was space, in fact. But there's that's not enough. enough. <laughs> it needs to keep growing. It's not enough to know that it's infinite. It's enough once you know what it what's what is what, what is. once it's finite and you can get to that point. Then then we have enough. Because if there's infinite they'll never be enough. There are many lyrics that I revisit on this album, but the one that I spend too little time thinking about is <laughs> just screaming space because that, that is what my career is. It's just screaming about space all day. You should just have that. We appreciate you. Meetings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what exactly. are we, what are we talking about space? We're talking about space. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's well, you also talk about flying machines too, I guess. So that's, that's uh, and occasionally stars. In fact, very uh, good. Track number ten, the longest on the record, February Stars. Um, let's let's continue with space, Brett. Tell right, us. Let's, let's continue with space. Let's continue with space. We're let's still continue in space. Continue with space. Yeah. When I first downloaded this album, and I was looking at the track listing, and I saw a song called February Stars, I was like. I'm going to be obligated to like this one because when you study astronomy, the sky that you memorize the best is the sky on your birthday. Not for astrological reasons. It's not like we're practicing some voodoo or something, but you become more attached to the way the sky would look on your birthday than any other time. And my birthday is in February. So the, even just the track name, February Stars, I was like, it's so on the nose. Am I even going to, is this, 
what am I going to get from this? And I think it's seductive. It's a seductive track. It plays on your curiosity to hear what crooning could possibly fit on this record and how big it could become. And I think the lyrical content is some of the best on the record because it's speaking very plainly and yet it could be about anything at the same time. And I think that's the kind of lyrical content that I most associate with. So despite myself, I really learned to love this song. Let me ask you this. I want to stick with the theme you're presenting because I really didn't know that about your profession and line of work and the, the personal affinity to, you know, try to find a connection to what it is that you're doing. Is there something in view in the month you were born that sticks out in particular? Like, is there a certain constellation or arrangement of, of the planets or the stars that like you connect with? This is really fun because I can answer this question in a metaphor driven by the Foo Fighters. So nice. the, the monkey wrench of the sky in February is Orion. Everyone knows Orion. Orion is the big hit. It's yep. the one that like most people can point to if they're going to point at something. Probably my favorite, the February stars of the stars in February, you might say, would probably be the constellation called Delphinus. This is a little known one. It is a dolphin. It is made up of about six stars. When you draw the lines between the stars, it looks like a little sperm or a balloon. Like that's all it is. It's just a little puny shape. And it's made up of stars that are too dim to see in most heavily populated places. So like most people don't know that it exists, but it's there. And for that reason, I love it because who needs a dolphin in the sky? Nobody needs a dolphin in the sky. It's completely superfluous. And yet there it is. And sometimes that's how I feel about the song February Stars. It's pandering in a certain sense. It's, it's like, yeah, I'll give you the soft thing and then I'll get really loud and you're going to love it. But I do. And that's how I feel about Delphinus too. Andrew, uh, first, well, hold on. first of all, I need to find. I don't this. know if you're looking. I need for to me find to... this constellation. I you, no, you, there is no follow up to this. There's no follow up to that. But you know what's you know what's amazing because I'm reading the lyrics as you're describing the constellations that connect with you. Just as it ends, February stars floating in the dark, temporary scars. It's I mean, isn't that and essentially what floats but a dolphin? Well, logic be damned. <laughs> it's it's the idea that as as Brett's mentioning, you know, there's something obscure out there, but if you take the time to listen to and appreciate it, you will find some deeper meaning and real satisfaction in what you're searching for. Um, and I'm so glad that you found a personal connection in this because that's what Dave's looking for when he writes his records. That's what anyone's looking for when they listen to music. Um, you guys both mentioned you both have written songs in your own time, and that's what you, I'm sure, search for when you write your own stuff. And so. I mean, what's, what's a better, you know, symbol of that than a song like this with a connection like that? So, um, Andrew, if there's anything you'd like to add to that, that story, if there's any way you can follow up that. I'd the only thing it. I can say is that you, you end on this heavy, you know, the heavy ending from February Stars and you go into the big, their biggest hit. It will always be their biggest hit. Uh, it's pretty awesome alt, alt rock classic love song. It's about as much as I can say towards it, uh, yeah. other than it's 
musical, you know, musicalness. I think he was written about a singer of another alt band at the time that he was, you know, his wife from breaking up. They had like a thing quickly. But I think its placement's great. Like you're searching, you know, searching for meaning after February Stars and then going into Everlong with this love song and then going as it goes into the next two songs that end the record of acceptance and knowing where, you know, moving forward. It's, it's placement is perfect. I wouldn't, it shouldn't be any higher up. It's exactly in the right spot in the record. I love it. It's, it's Everlong. It's, it's a great Foo Fighter song. Pete, any thoughts? It's great for live shows. It, it has the right amount of buildup. You know, if you think about, I'm not going to associate this with dance music, but I think the pattern of it kind of works is that there's always a buildup and then a drop. And I think Everlong does that really successfully. I think that's why it still works in live shows is because there's still that same feeling of, you know, you feel yourself fill up before that, that chorus comes back. And I think it's, I mean, it, it's, I think it's my favorite Foo Fighters song. Definitely on this record, it would be top five of, of all time because it's just that it's so iconic in that way. It's one of only three songs that Dave Grohl wrote by himself on this record, um, which tells you a lot about Dave Grohl and and his songwriting capability. But it's, it, I mean, so much has been said about it. The only thing I can add is that it's a fantastic record. I'll listen to it anytime, anywhere, and be happy about it. Brett, uh, what what are your thoughts about this one? This song is the most meta song on the record, and let me defend that statement. When you go to a Foo Fighters show if the Foo Fighters mean something to you, you want to be able to sing back to the Foo Fighters the song that they've been singing to you all along. And the moment that Dave creates in this song, when he says, and I wonder, when I sing along with you, if anything could ever be this real forever, if anything could ever be this good again, he's giving you the opportunity and the reminder that you ought to be in the present especially when this song is playing. And I've always treated this song that way. This song is almost a mindful reminder that like you should be paying attention right now. And that's how I felt when I saw them perform it each time. It's a moment that you know you wait for as you're listening to the Foo Fighters play. And then as it's happening, you're like, hey, it's happening. Uh, it, it, it is a moment in itself that it creates for itself. They do. They usually end shows with this, um, and when they do, it always has this feeling of like you've been there for two hours, three. Hours, you know, it's the end of the show, and you have this moment. I, I've pretty almost always had them this the moment of like this is the end. I want to soak this in because after this, I have to go back to my real life. Right, and that that's a really great way of putting putting it. That this is it. it I think yeah, it, it does have that feeling of like this is this is where we are let's enjoy the enjoy what's happening to us right now because we don't know what's going to happen later like enjoy this moment forever it's like brett said you know kill them and leave them they get up there they go away so once they get off they're off they're off the stage unless you're at cal jam where they return as nirvana and andrew sure loses mind. <laughs> yeah that that was a that was a great show it was a fantastic show uh the first time that you and i saw them pete uh, they opened the show with this, which was kind of a bonkers experience. They just, they like this, the riff starts right when, when the real riff kicks right. in, once it gets heavy, mm-hmm. the curtain drops and yes. he's just rocking out on the, on the throne. And I, that was like bizarre because 
they, I was like, why you're starting with Everlong? You're really, you're really bringing this to, to a 13 for this show. I think for you it was more bizarre than me. Cause like I said, that was my first live show experience. And so I knew, I didn't know any differently, but having seen them several times now, I'm like, okay, I see why that was so different and so special. But what's mm-hmm. also special is track 12, our namesake track walking after you, Andrew, I would like you to lead this because yeah. I, I love this song it coming out of Everlong. This is, it's a beautiful song. It's, it's a, you know, it, it's a similar song. You're, it's him trying to chase, you know, trying to, trying to chase the thing that was gone and figuring out where to take from it. It's, it's a great, beautiful song that doesn't get played because like as much, I think it gets put, if they do acoustic stuff, they've done it, but it's not something that they, you're not going to pull that out. Like after you do like monkey wrench and, whatever like the pretender you're not gonna go into like let's let's like wave let's like kind of like wave back here but it's a great song and it also you rhymes with rhymes with foo and uh it was the natural choice uh because i thought the best of foo seemed a little silly it could be misconstrued a little bit (laughs) a little bit again it sets up the template for in particular it makes me think of skin and bones I think of the live performance that's acoustic where they're taking their time and they know that you're along for the ride and that's what walking after you feels like to me. Like the, the skin and bones version yeah. is great. That's we'll, we'll eventually talk about that um, on a future episode, but yeah, the skin and bones material was such a great way to bring a bunch of songs that you don't wouldn't hear at a normal Foo Fighters show because they're the Foo Fighters and they rock hard. Uh, but they do have these tracks like February Stars and See You and Walking After You that are beautiful songs. And this is like a great way to give that like singer-songwriter feel. Yep. And that's the, uh, was it the penultimate uh, record on the regular edition of this album? The last one, not counting deluxe and B-sides, which we can get into, is New Way Home. This is what ends the record is New Way Home. Um, how do you guys feel about this being the conclusion of Color and Shape? I think this is my favorite song on the record. Really? Uh, and because of the way that it's ordered, it, it is the, like, the closing, I'm like, we're going to find a new, like, we're going to have an accepting moving forward song. And it has that break in the middle. It has a little bit of everything. It has that like soft quiet, the pop. It has the like screaming conclusion of letting that frustration. I'm going to, you know, it's, I think this is one of my favorite songs. It's under, underplayed, uh, like my other favorite songs uh, from their albums. I do prefer their, uh, their deep cuts, as it turns out. Uh, but this is, a great, this is a great way to end. This is a great ending to The Color and the Shape. Brett, how does it feel for you as the end of the record? For me, it reminds me of living in Seattle. Uh, For those who don't know, the Kingdom was a stadium in downtown Seattle that Dave Grohl walked past, along with walking past boats, and he was not scared. These are facts that the song tells us. I'm not scared. I pass boats in the Kingdom. It's not Kingdom. It's the Kingdom. And the Kingdom doesn't exist anymore. It was imploded and it is no longer part of the city of Seattle. 
uh, planned, of course. I, I saw your surprised face, Peter. It was not. I want to make sure something didn't happen when it wasn't supposed to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a reason to be scared. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> the this song reminds me of Pioneer Square in Seattle, because if you're walking home through Pioneer Square at a particular time of the late night, early morning, you might mutter to yourself, I'm not scared. I'm not scared. And this is that part of Seattle. And it reminds me of nights that were way too late when I was coming home and things were not scary, not scary at all. A a good way to wrap it up also symbolically of just, okay, I've let out the emotion I need to let out. The moment is past. I'm ready to move on into a new record with a new band. As we mentioned earlier, this is the first release of Foo Fighters with what's becoming the full band Foo Fighters. But this is not the end of the record. There were deluxe editions released, tour packages, B-sides. Andrew, should we dive into those, those extra uh, uh, components yeah. of it? Let's, let's do that. Um, quick thing for both of you guys. Now that we've hit the end of the record proper, uh, what is your thoughts, takeaway, as the record as presented initially? Uh, Brett, why don't you start? I think as a whole, this album hits all of the spots that I want touched by a Foo record. It's got the, the, the soft bits that you can sink your teeth into, but also the meaty rock hits that keep you coming back. And there's something about albums that you've listened to so many times that they become not background noise, but kind of the opposite. Uh, as if your inner monologue knows how to sing along to the songs and then it becomes the passage of time in your brain. I'm, I'm really going out there on this one. But what I'm trying to say is that there are only certain albums that I can listen to once a day, every day, forever. And this happens to be one of those albums. And I'm not sure why. It might be because of when it was introduced to me. It might be because of the flow of the ups and downs. It might be because there are the hits sprinkled in with the less hits. It, it hits all the flavor notes that I'm looking for when I want an album to be playing frequently. And so this is one of those few albums that I do listen to all the time. If I sit down and I need to write something, I will put this album on. If I need to sit down and wake up, I will put this album on. If I need to sit down and chill out, I will put parts of this album on. And it's it's all there for you to choose. And that's one of the things that I like about the Foo discography as a whole that I think this album represents. Couldn't agree more. This is one of those records that back to front, it's not it's not like every song is a hit in the sense of like a, a thriller or the car's first album or something like that. But Every, but every song fits perfectly like next to each other. This is one of those perfectly sequenced records that it's a great record all the way through, like from, from the first notes of doll to the like winding down of new way home. So I love it. Yeah. Agreed. I think we were talking before we were playing an association game. You think color, what do you think? And I think the first words that came out were spectrum. I think this is, this, that's, that's what this record is. It's a spectrum of soft and loud and happy and sad. It's, it's, it feels that, that whole spectrum really nicely. And I think any mood you're in, anytime you're in the mood for it, 
um, you can listen to this record, any part of it, really. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, you listen to it all the way through because I think that's the best way to experience it, any album for that matter. But I think it it's, it's, has easy, you know, heavy rotation songs all yeah. over. So that's, so album proper, I think that's what's, what's so great about it. Should we dive into B-sides? Let's talk about them a little bit. Um, there were a handful. Uh, the, there was a 10th anniversary release that put a lot of them together. Um, there are two originals and four uh, covers, but we're going to do, I think we're going to do covers on like a whole, like a, like a bonus of all the covers they've done and why they've done them and, you know, stuff like that. But uh, we'll talk about the two originals. Uh, the first one being Dear Lover, uh, which is a really beautiful song. I love this song, uh, Dear Lover. It's a really soft uh so it feels like it it couldn't replace anything that's on this record. There's nothing like I wouldn't change anything about this record at all. Uh, but it feels like it could have been in place of Doll if they wanted a full song to be the intro to this is a soft song and there's gonna be emotions, but it's also gonna jam. It's also gonna jam. It's got a, um, it's got a bop. It's it, always got a bop. <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah. Has to bop. But um, Brett, did um, your thoughts on on Dear Lover? I only heard it for the first time like this week, so this one's a new one to me. Oh wow! And it's so I did not do my homework on B sides at all, which makes me perhaps an interesting audience on these B sides because yeah. I am an avid Foo listener, but I am not familiar with these songs. So when you come to them with fresh ears the patterns are all there that you find in the rest of the Foo music, but it kind of puts a pin in the way that Foo sounded at a particular point in time. Mm -hmm. And I think this song could not come on the album before or after, like it belongs on this album. And I think that's one of the things that I love listening for is that like an artist should evolve at least a little bit in the course of their career and Fu has changed with time and I think it was fun for me to listen to this b-side because it fits with the album that I love so much mm -hmm. and it felt like a time capsule that I was not privileged to see before and I, I got to hear it. It, it feels uh, a lot like the song How I Miss You, which is a B-side from the first record that didn't make the album, uh, in that it's a very soft and sort of emotional song that, like, you know, didn't, Choice was like, oh, no, let's not, let's not go with it. But it is interesting to, as we're going through, and we'll start to hear them as we go on, that, like, these, so far, these first two records are very distinctly the period that they are. Mm -hmm. None of these songs, if they re-recorded them, would make as much sense anywhere else. It's not like you could take a song like February Stars or Dear Lover and put them on one by one. It's not, you know, they, you have to, with these songs, you kind of have to start from scratch as you move into a new record. Like recycling material feels, like recycling a song feels like a strange option. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, the next one would be the title song of the album, The Color and the Shape, which to me, 
I love because it sounds like a lot of other B-sides. Um, it's the grungiest thing that they were like, nah, this just isn't going to work here. It's the the podunk uh, or watershed of the first record. There are B-sides in the future that uh, I think of like a FFL that are like, oh, that's it, that feels in that vein of like, this is the noisiest thing I'm going to make. And if I play it like two times in Seattle, they're going to go nuts and we're never going to play it anywhere else. Uh, not until like White Limo, I think, is the first time that I have that I hear a song on a record that sounds like this. And why that is, I, I have no idea uh, why a song. Well, I understand why I didn't make this record because of the structure, but like why these songs continuously don't make records, I think is an interesting choice. Why the title track in particular doesn't make it, you know, especially in this case, it's, it's not expected that there's always a title track, but when it becomes a B side, you almost have to, you know, perk up a little bit and say, Oh, well, what, 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 why, why didn't this make the original record? But I think when you listen to it, you think, okay, I can, I can see why I think everything else is on the record is so strong to begin with. Um, for all the reasons we've mentioned that this didn't have to be there. It didn't have to be a title track. There was no, there's, there's, there's no hard and fast rule about that. Um, Brett, as, as someone who I think you said is experiencing these B-sides fairly recently, uh, how did Color and the Shape stand out to you? So the Color and the Shape is the one that I knew. And okay. the Color and the Shape for me is a nod to music that we know that Dave Grohl loves. And I think there's something fun in the attempt to write in write yourself into a genre that you love like when you're writing music you aren't sitting there thinking i'm writing an r&b song today or at least i i don't know anybody who does think that way um you think i'm going to write the song that will come out of me today and hopefully there is one and then you try really hard and then you see what happens but there's this kind of like musical cosplay that's happening sometimes on this album where he's like, I'm going to be hardcore for this one. And there's like a wink and a nod. And then he dives into it and is very serious about it. And I love the, the spirit that you have to bring with you to say like, all right, I, I like some loud music, but uh, I haven't made one loud enough yet. Let me see if I can turn it up just a little bit louder. And I feel like that's what this song does for me. It's like, yeah, if it's how I let the album play out most of the time so that it goes out with a bang. It's like we've, we've hit 13, but there is a 15 dial on the, on the amp. We could maybe get to 15 if we, if we try hard enough. You know, I believe... Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that is the the kind of the, the core of the B sides for this record. I believe there there's many songs that were there's co- a couple covers, there's you know, a couple those. you know they have the the slow version of Up in Arms or right. the the single mix of Walking After You and uh, but that's pretty much the core of it along with the the covers that we'll we'll talk about another time we'll right. we'll, we'll just hype that for a little longer uh, but yeah that's the core of the record uh, and I got one more question for you Brett before we we head off uh, and that is. What is your was your favorite Foo Fighters record, and what are your top three favorite Foo Fighters songs? Ooh, top three is really hard. Color and the Shape is my favorite Foo Fighters record. It is not the record that 
made me fall in love with the Foo Fighters. It is not the first album that I heard of from the Foo Fighters, but it is the enduring mainstay of the catalog that I always come back to and always crave. Even if I'm listening to other albums by Foo, I will come back to this album and go out of my way to listen to it again. If I had to pick top three songs, I think I would need to subdivide this category. This is what I always do when someone asks me to pick my favorites. I would say, well, favorite for what? And I think favorites to play are different from favorites to listen to because let's be real, the hits are really fun to play as a musician. So like playing My Hero is really fun. Playing Best of You is really fun. Playing Pretender is really fun. And for me, those songs have been a sort of common language with other musicians. I've played with several musicians in the past decade. And I think the, the one thing that's poppy enough that most people know a few of the songs, but also not poppy enough that we'd actually have fun playing it is some of the Foo hits and those songs have a special meaning to me for that because it's like a, a common language that I can come back to and play with other people. And, you know, I think when I think about the music that I played with Andrew, I think about that as like a training ground for the music that I would play later with other people. And I had loads of fun in the first session when I played with my most recent drummer playing Foo Fighter songs because we both knew them and we didn't have to talk to each other about how we would play it or remind each other of the lyrics. We could just say, let's start playing My Hero and the drums would start and the rest of the song would fall into place. And for that reason, my favorite songs to play are probably those, uh, probably Best of You, Pretender, and maybe Everlong. My Hero's up there. And so there, there's some representation from Color in the Shape in, in that top few well we love the fact that we could have you on today to not only share how personally this impacts you but the way that you interpret these songs is so unique compared i think to andrew and i andrew and i have a very similar kind of analysis of these songs but the perspective you brought was really really kind of eye-opening to me you know the february stars that that story is going to stick with me for a while that was that was that was remarkable so thank you brett um you know, for, for taking the time with us, for sitting with us, sharing your thoughts. We, I'm sure we will maybe have you on again for, you know, another uh, record down yeah, the line. Right. There's, you're open, always welcome. Open, invi- open invitation. The Zoom call is always open. It's always live. Well, I think, I think when Medium Rare makes it onto your list, then we should get together. That'll probably be uh, that bonus covers uh, episode that we'll, that we were uh, hinting at, so we will we'll definitely bring you on for we'll br- we'll bring you on for for some of those as well. Absolutely, the only record I've listened to as many times as Color in the Shade is Medium Rare. <laughs> I am a weirdo that way, so I would love to come back for that. But thank you guys both for having me. I've had a yeah. lot of fun. Thank you for uh, for joining us, and uh, really excited to continue our journey uh, into the Foo Fighters with the next episode, which will be There Is Nothing Left to Lose. Yes, which so, Dave Grohl, spoiler, says it might be his favorite album they've ever done. So we'll talk about it. We'll explain why he may feel that way, how we feel about it. But again, this is Walking After Foo. My name is Peter. I'm Andrew. And I've been Brett. 
and he'll be back. His stories will be back with us soon. But thank you so much for listening. You can listen to us on Apple Music, Spotify Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, it's under the Music Unsubscribed umbrella. So be sure to search Music Unsubscribed when you want to find our episodes. And we'll be coming out with more shortly. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day.